please join with me as I ask for God's help as we come to this text. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, please help us now as we come to this Bible passage. It speaks of traditions and practices that we that might sound foreign and unfamiliar to us. Uh, please help us to understand what is being said and taught. Uh, please use me and my weakness to teach this passage well. Help me to explain things clearly and apply the principles thoughtfully to our lives. Uh, help us to leave this passage with a deeper faith in Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, have you ever believed that something would be good for you only to find out that it's actually harmful? Maybe a relationship or, or a job that went bad? Have you, if you have, you're not alone. And most of us have done uh, this in little or big ways. In fact, history is replete with uh, people believing something to be good for them, to make sense when in fact it was actually bad. For example, you might be interested to know that once upon a time, heroin was used as cough medicine. Asbestos was once sold in a box to create fake snow for your Christmas tree. All that snow in the Wizard of Oz scene? Asbestos. Radium-based facial creams were used in the 30s to reduce wrinkles and to provide a healthy glow. See, humanity has a long history of embracing ideas that turn out to be terrible. Well, in tonight's passage, we're going to think about another idea that many people today buy into but is ultimately terrible for them. And that is the belief that says this, God will accept me because of my good works. It's the idea that if, if you're a good person, you keep the rules, you do your religious duties, you'll be fine with God. He'll give you the tick of approval and let you into his kingdom. Uh, this particular view of things has often been referred to in theological circles as works-based righteousness. We believe we are righteous in God's sight based on the good things we think we do. I think this is actually a common view in our society, and it was common in Jesus' day too. But as we'll see tonight, it's a view that is riddled with problems and real eternal consequences if we embrace it. In tonight's passage, Jesus engages with people who were thoroughly entrenched in this way of thinking. And we're actually critical of his new teaching, which said that it's actually not about what you do, but what I will do for you. Uh, tonight I want to highlight three big problems of the works-based mindset that we see going on with the Pharisees in this passage. I want to do this because, uh, so that we can see how wrong and harmful this commonly accepted view actually is, and why Jesus' way of faith in him is so much better. So here are the three problems of thinking that God accepts us on the basis of our works. First is that it's incompatible with God's way of faith in Jesus. Second is that it creates burden, not blessing. And the third is that it ultimately poisons our soul and turns us away from God's Savior. So let's look at all three of those. First, works-based righteousness is problematic because it is incompatible 
with God's way of faith in Jesus. As we saw last week, people are not made right with God because of their own righteousness, but because of the forgiveness that Jesus graciously gives to us through his death for sin. Remember what Jesus said at the end of that passage, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. But the Pharisees, the religious heavyweights of Jesus' day, had actually rejected that notion. They didn't think they were among the spiritually sick. From their workspace righteousness point of view, they didn't need Jesus to heal them. They were doing fine. If anything, it was actually this guy who was claiming to be some kind of great spiritual doctor, actually, he might need a bit of a checkup. After all, he seems pretty lax when it comes to the religious rituals present in that time. And you see, that is the kind of note, the tone that our passage starts on, a critique of Jesus' attitude towards the practice of fasting. Uh, now, I wonder if you've ever had that moment where someone kind of deliberately draws attention to other people's achievements in order to highlight some kind of inadequacy in you. You know, I've noticed all the other employees here wear ties except for you. Parents often do this with their kids at mealtime. It's great to see the way your sisters have eaten all of their food on their plates. It's this kind of implicit rebuke that Jesus gets thrown at him and his disciples at the start of our passage. You can see it in verse 18 in your Bibles. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? And now we know from the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18 uh, that Pharisees perhaps made a habit of fasting twice a week. Now, John's disciples may have been fasting in line with uh, the repentance John had been preaching. Fasting was often associated with mourning and lament. But do you hear the the implicit criticism of Jesus here? Why aren't your guys as devout as those guys? I mean, aren't you supposed to be some kind of holy teacher, Jesus? Now, Jesus could have defended his actions or the actions of his disciples by pointing out that actually the only specific fast day directly commanded in the law was on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. He could have responded by saying, why are you expecting my guys to do something that God has not commanded? But Jesus doesn't speak about uh, this being unnecessary. Rather, he speaks about it being inappropriate. It's inappropriate for his disciples to fast while he's with them. You can see it there in verse 19. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them. Can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. Totally inappropriate. See, Jesus isn't saying this is a time for fasting, but for festivity. See, who here has ever been to a wedding or a wedding reception where the MC announces the arrival of the bride and groom and then, jo- and then says to everyone, please join with the bride and groom 
in a somber fast for the next two hours. See, that's just nuts, isn't it? We feast at weddings. We don't fast. It's a joyous moment where we celebrate a new beginning of a married couple. See, Jesus is saying that it's like that with his arrival on the scene. The one the world has been waiting for, God's saviour, God's king, has arrived. This is a joyous moment of gospel, good news, which Mark told us in chapter 1, verse 1. And you can see it already, can't you? The sick are being healed at this point. The demons are being cast out. Sins last week are being forgiven. This is a glorious new beginning in which God's kingdom was bursting into the world through God's King Jesus. A day of fasting for Jesus' disciples will come when he is taken away from them, Jesus says, and I take that to mean his arrest and crucifixion, but that day is not today, says Jesus. Uh, But it's not just the ritual of fasting that Jesus is addressing now at this point. In verses 21 to 22, he starts to explain through the use of two little parables that the whole religious worldview common among the Pharisees and the religious of his day was being superseded by his new and better way. But it's important for us to really kind of understand what the, uh, the view of the religious teachers was in Jesus' day. Uh, in a nutshell, they had a works-based righteousness mindset, which we've thought about already. They believed God's salvation would come to them and to the people of Israel only on the basis of strict observance to the Jewish law and all of the other traditions that they put around that, which we'll speak about in just a moment. So the prevailing religious message of Jesus' day was that you've got to follow all the religious rules, both in the law and in our tradition, and then God will bless you. You do for God and God will do for you. And you see, this is why they had such a major issue when Jesus called tax collectors to follow him last week. Because from their point of view, those guys hadn't done for God yet, and yet you're calling them. And isn't this often the prevailing world when it comes to God today, right? If I'm a good enough person, if I do the right rituals, God or the gods will hopefully accept me, reward me, protect me. Jesus is saying that this way of works is totally incompatible with his way of faith, faith in him, where we put our trust in him rather than ourselves. It's like Jesus saying, it's like sewing a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, verse 21. It just doesn't work. It will tear away from the old cloth and ruin everything. It's like putting new wine into old wineskins, verse 22. As it ferments and expands, it bursts open the old and stiff leather. It doesn't work. The two things are incompatible. You see, in both of these little parables, Jesus is showing us how the new, his way, cannot be confined in the old, their way. But more than that, how the new actually destroys the old. 
And you see, that's exactly what Jesus' message had already started to do when he began preaching and teaching. We saw that last week. The Pharisees had preached salvation through rules. He preached salvation through himself. They said, keep our traditions. He said, receive my forgiveness. They kept away from sinners. Jesus welcomed them. They thought they were healthy. Jesus said they were sick. Jesus is showing us here that his new way trumps the old way. We must not think that the way to God is through our good works and our religious rule-keeping. See, if you think that, you're actually as misguided as someone who in the 30s was using radium-based facial creams for that healthy glow. It's nuts, according to God. I think, though, that even as Christians, we can kind of lose sight of how radically different Jesus is to the other do-better religions of our world and worldviews. See, sometimes in subtle ways we can speak about Jesus or think about him as someone who still plays by the Pharisee's handbook. I reflect on this every time I go into the city and walk past that big heritage-listed Prezi church that I sometimes have to go to meetings in. On the outside of the gates, there is this plaque that has a picture of Jesus speaking with the thief on the cross. And below, the title reads, Jesus Speaks with the Good Thief. Do you see the subtle way, the radical nature of Jesus' way has been softened in the title? See, it's not that Jesus is speaking with the thief, it's the good thief. And that just always gets to me a little bit because it kind of suggests that at the end of the day, Well, that thief on the cross, he was actually a good guy. And that's why Jesus spoke to him. No, he was a bad guy, a sinner. And actually, he's the first one to admit it when you read that account. And see, that's what makes it so radical and awesome that Jesus speaks with him, listens to him, and then welcomes him into paradise. The way of Jesus is incompatible with the way of works and legalistic rule-keeping. But second, uh, works-based righteousness is harmful because it creates burden, not blessing. Uh, That's what I think we see in the two accounts that flow from this, both of which concern the Jewish Sabbath. Now, if we have any hope of understanding what is going on in these next two instances and why Jesus gets so much hostility thrown at him, we actually need to understand a little bit about the Jewish Sabbath. Uh, The Sabbath day was part of the way of life of most Jews, still is. Uh, Any Jew in Jesus' day could tell you that God had from creation blessed the seventh day of the week and declared it holy, Genesis 2. It was also enshrined in the Ten Commandments as a day of rest in which Israel was to remember that their God was the creator God as well as the saviour God who had rescued them from Egypt. 
Now, at one level, that kind of sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? It's a day where you take a break from working, rest, and remember God. But if you've got a kind of legalistic, rule-keeping worldview, like the Pharisees, it's actually not that straightforward. You see, when they read the words, you must not do any work, their natural question was, what does it mean to work? I need to know exactly what I can do and what I can't do. And so to solve this problem, the Pharisees had created 39 subcategories of Sabbath law, which outlined and unpacked all the various activities that could be deemed work and was therefore prohibited. One of these categories was reaping, which was defined as the severing of a plant from its source of growth. So this meant that plucking a wild flower was forbidden. Climbing a tree was forbidden in case you accidentally severed a branch when you were climbing up. And yes, picking some heads of grain was forbidden. See, remember where the Pharisees had taken things. Rest day to remember God to you can't pick a daisy. This is legalistic righteousness at its finest. So that's a bit about the Sabbath, which stands as the kind of context behind what happens next. And I think it'll help us as we come to these verses. So look at verse 23. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, what would you have said if you were in Jesus' shoes? Perhaps like, just give me a break here. Are you seriously going to be that ridiculously pedantic? But as always, Jesus keeps his cool, acts with patience, and he goes to God's word. And in this case, it's an instance in the life of David that is applicable to this moment. Uh, Look at verse 25 in your Bibles. He said to them, have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions. Now, you can go and read about that instance in 1 Samuel chapter 21. But what's interesting uh, in that case is that God does not condemn David uh, or the the priest for their actions. The Pharisees would have known this which I think is why Jesus puts it to them. He wants them to mull on why God would not have condemned David in that moment. And the why, I believe, is to show, that, show them that in God's eyes, human need was more important than ritual requirement. The disciples were hungry. We know that from Matthew's account of this instance. And Jesus allows them to have their basic human need met. The Sabbath was supposed to be received as a day of blessing, or in the words of Isaiah, a delight. And that's why Jesus says in verse 21 of our passage, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees, they had kind of become a little bit like 
the park keeper in Mary Poppins Returns, which is a movie that my kids watched recently, and that's about the only movie references I get these days. Uh, In this movie, this guy, the park keeper, he's put in charge of taking care of this wonderful grassy park near where the kids live. But he's so wrapped up in preserving the pristine grass that he just won't let the kids anywhere near it. They're not allowed to run on it, not allowed to play near it. He continually tells them off and reminds them to keep off the grass. But you see, grassy parks, just like Sabbaths, are meant to be enjoyed. The Pharisees had turned the day of blessing into a day of burden. Now, at this point in the conversation, you can imagine the the Pharisees kind of protesting Jesus and his critique. You know, will will these rules, Jesus, have been around for generations? They were passed down to us from some of the wisest rabbis in history. How dare you challenge their authority? And how do you think Jesus actually would actually answer that? Well, I think verse 28 gives us the answer. So then the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. It's like Jesus saying, you say you are the interpreters of the Sabbath? Well, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And I have authority to speak about what God does and does not desire in this realm. I have authority as the Lord to speak about what the Sabbath was made for, what it means, how it should be observed and enjoyed. You guys are making it a burden, not a blessing, as God intended. And it's the same in the following incident with the man with the shriveled hand. Healing him in the minds of the Pharisees was again a form of work, prohibited. Again, burden over blessing. You can read it. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Now, the answer, of course, was to do good and save life on God's holy, blessed day. But how could they admit that? That would greenlight Jesus' activity, which they wanted to charge him against. Instead, we read that they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Now, this incident, together with the heads of grain episode, together they demonstrate the contrast between the burden of rule-keeping religion and the blessing of knowing Jesus in God's true way. I wonder whether you feel burdened or blessed in your relationship with God. I think it's easy to have your experience, even of being a Christian, become more of a burden than a blessing. Uh, Sometimes it happens when, as Christians, we create extra rules for ourselves. See, like the Pharisees, we come up with things 
to help us stay on track or to kind of give us a sense of control. I remember doing that as a child, actually. I had made a rule for myself that I had to say my nightly prayers in the exact same order with the exact same right words for the exact same people every single night. Uh, And I became convinced that if I didn't do this every night, I was failing God and that he wouldn't be pleased with me. But you see, it just became burdensome. The prayer was quite long. I was often tired and I actually just started to loathe going to bed and having to go through that whole routine. See, isn't it sad when the blessing of communion with God, the privilege of prayer, gets turned into the burden of a box that needs to be ticked? Where do you turn blessing into burden? Maybe it's your daily Bible reading or church attendance or evangelism or roster service. Have those things which God gives for your blessing and for the blessing of others become burdens in your life? Do you feel the burden of trying to do and do for God in order to win his favor? Now to help figure that out, it might actually be worth asking yourself, do I feel more accepted by God if I do these things and less accepted by him if I struggle at them? If I struggle to read the Bible or to pray or if I keep quiet when an opportunity to share Jesus comes up or if I don't serve at church? See, if the answer is yes, it may be that a kind of harmful works-based mindset has maybe started to creep in a little bit. It may be that you need to go back to the way of Jesus who assures us that we are always wholly accepted by God on the basis of our faith in his work at the cross, not our work in our life. God has credited us with Jesus' righteousness. We need to be like Paul, who despite his life of good works, his history as a Pharisee, the religious rule-keeping he did, we need to be like Paul, who rejoiced in the blessing the supreme, surpassing value of just knowing Christ. Paul writes, But everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. See, our natural instinct as humans is to revert back to a works-based mindset when it comes to God, I think. But if we buy into that, which many people do, we do ourselves harm. We create burden, not blessing, in our life. Finally, a works-based approach to righteousness will ultimately poison the soul. Uh, If we do not stop believing that's me and my good life rather than Jesus and his good work on the cross which justifies, we will be in serious spiritual trouble. 
It's like that radium facial cream. If you keep using it, you will be poisoned. And see, this is what actually happens to the Pharisees. Their rule-keeping worldview poisoned them against the true source of life in Jesus. Jesus, we're told in verse 5, is grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And in fact, they are so poisoned by their misguided worldview that they actually believe they are the good guys in this passage and Jesus is the bad guy. See, it doesn't matter that Jesus just miraculously brought life and healing to a man with a shriveled hand. He broke one of their rules and that's why they seek to kill him. They see him and his message of grace to sinners rather than reward for rule keepers as a huge threat to their worldview. The new wine of Jesus is bursting apart the old wine skin of the Pharisees and they don't like it. See, look at verse 6, the way this passage ends. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. See, the Pharisees had been poisoned by self-righteousness. And as a result, they had come to the devastating conclusion that it was right to reject and get rid of Jesus. But in coming to that conclusion, they had cut themselves off from God's doctor, who we saw last week, as the power to heal their sin problem. They had attempted to fix the bullet hole wound of their sin with the band-aid of religious ritual. They had made themselves enemies with God by rejecting his saviour. If we think we are good enough for God, we will get annoyed, frustrated, even hostile towards Jesus when we hear him telling us otherwise. We, kind of like they, will want him out of our lives and to stop disrupting our cherished view of ourself. Don't let your soul be poisoned like these guys. Don't reject the Lord who saves. Uh, maybe you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian. Uh, maybe you currently believe that your good life, your rule-keeping, will earn you God's favour. Maybe you, like the Pharisees, aren't convinced you're a sinner, someone who has rejected and ignored God and stands under his judgment. Don't be like them. There is no one who is truly righteous, the book of Romans tells us. Even the Pharisees, who were considered the moral good guys of Jesus' day, had this huge problem of sin in their life. And you actually see that, that they were willing to put Jesus an innocent man to death. We, like them, have that insidious sin problem that lay buried beneath all our outward good works. And maybe if you're truly honest with yourself, you kind of know that, and you know that God would not be okay with it. Uh, don't try and remedy the problem with more good works, more religion, like the Pharisees. That won't work. You need Jesus. He promises to save you. He lives the good life you should have lived. And he dies the death you should have died. 
He takes away the guilt of sin and he brings you forgiveness. And you are declared righteous in God's sight through faith in him. You are saved by God's grace, not your works. So don't go another day embracing a misguided worldview that does you harm, both in this life and actually in the life to come. Embrace the true way, the better way of God's, uh, the God, the better way, God's way of faith in Jesus. Uh, tonight we've seen Jesus dismantle the religious worldview of the Pharisees who were critical of him. We've seen him highlight, I think, three key problems associated with their works-based mindset. It's not compatible with God's way. It creates burden, not blessing, and it poisons the soul. Uh, We need the way of Jesus, not the way of works. Uh, I was reminded of this eight years ago or so when my pop was dying in hospital. Uh, My mother asked him if he was ready to die, and he replied to her that he just wasn't sure if he had lived a good enough life. Now imagine how disconcerting that would be in your final days, worrying as to whether God would accept you when you see him soon. Unsure if you have lived a good enough life or done enough religious things. My pop had actually gone to church his entire life. It's easy to go through life with a works-based mindset when it comes to God. But when we are faced with the stark reality of our death, it's a mindset that leaves most of us uncertain and unsatisfied. But you need that certainty. You need that satisfaction in that moment. And it comes through faith in Jesus, not your works. In him you find forgiveness of your sin. In him you are credited with the righteousness of God you need. My mum assured my pop with that message of faith in Jesus. And I pray that we will leave here tonight reassured by it too. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that the message of Jesus is truly good news. Thank you for the good news that we are saved by grace and not our works. Through faith in Jesus and his work for us at the cross, please help us to see the harm our works-based approach to righteousness does to us and help us to cling to Jesus as our only source of hope and life in a world of sin and death. In his name we pray. Amen.